Hello, this is Nick Whitney and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. At the end of the last episode, I promised you a bit of a break from the sad cycle of endless conflicts fuelled by religious fanaticism and the lust for power. So, this, the 13th episode, will begin with the altogether more uplifting story of the revolutionary advance of science in the 15th and 16th centuries. After that, I'm afraid, we will be back with the jockeying of nations, with the France of Louis XIV, the Sun King, dominating the scene. The scientific revolution is often taken to begin in 1543, when Copernicus, on his deathbed, published his De Revolutionibus Orbium Coelestium, concerning the revolutions of the celestial spheres, laying out the heliocentric concept of the solar system. And the age is taken to culminate with the publication in 1687 of Newton's Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy, which set out the laws of motion and universal gravitation that explain so much of the mechanical operation of the Earth and the wider cosmos. Handy though it may be to label a particular historical development in this way, contemporaries would not have recognised it. In the first place, science was not yet a term. What its practitioners saw themselves as engaged in was natural philosophy, as per Newton's title, which was basically the expansion of man's understanding of the natural world around him and the development of tools and methods for advancing such knowledge. And, of course, the bookends ascribed to the scientific revolution are arbitrary at best. The Renaissance, after all, had already played a major part in encouraging humankind to take off the blinkers of religion and look at the world around with real curiosity. But to the extent that rediscovered ancient learning fuelled the Renaissance, it also imposed an oppressive incubus of ancient authority. Who was going to challenge Aristotle's conclusion that matter comprised the four elements of earth, air, fire and water? Or the great geographer Ptolemy's assumption that the sun revolved around the earth? Or the supreme Roman medic Galen's account of Venus and arterial blood being continuously produced by liver and heart respectively? Galen's authority endorsed the practice of bloodletting to rectify overproduction. Though proof of the blood circulation undermined this rationale, the practice persisted into the 19th century. So perhaps uh, 1543, when not only Copernicus's work appeared, but also Vesalius's groundbreaking treatise on human anatomy, based, unlike Galen's, on extensive dissection of actual human corpses, can reasonably stand proxy for a new moment of intellectual emancipation. As for the revolution's ascribed end date of 1687, any suggestion that this paused the endless flood of scientific advance would be ludicrous. Newton's own seminal work on optics was yet to come. But it was a a sort of culmination. 
In the first place, there was the Principia's intrinsic importance in providing a fully comprehensive account of the workings of the universe, an account which satisfied everyone for over 200 years, until Einstein came along. If you want to understand how the theory of relativity trumped Newton, I'm afraid there's no use asking me. But the Principia also represented a sort of paradigm of how science should be done. By the end of the 17th century, most of the ground rules for what to this day we regard as the scientific method had been established. The ancients had relied on a lot of hard thinking. Compare the atomic theory of matter, popularised in the Renaissance by the rediscovery of Lucretius, the modern scientists recognised the need to complement theory with observation, measurement and calculation. Mathematics is the language in which God has written the universe, as Galileo allegedly put it, as well as the sceptical mindset. Advocated by, by Francis Bacon and the French mathematician René Descartes. So, William Harvey got to the circulation of the blood by dissection but also by seeing what happened if you tied off limbs. Robert Boyle established the relationship between the pressure and volume of gases by, well, compressing and measuring them. And Galileo dropped things off the Leaning Tower of Pisa to debunk Aristotle's theory that heavier objects fell faster. Actually, Galileo may not have done and may have confined himself just to a thought experiment – but a couple of Dutchmen undoubtedly demonstrated the point with lead balls of different sizes dropped off the church in Delft. Improving technology was central to better observation and measurement, with advances in lens-making key. Pince-nez spectacles had been around for some 300 years. Grinding and polishing industries grew up in North Italy and then the Netherlands, where the telescope was invented in 1608. That's the refracting telescope, one convex and one concave lens in alignment. Newton, in due course, naturally went one better with his reflecting telescope, using curved mirrors in place of lenses, and thus overcoming refraction's problem of chromatic aberration. But I expect you knew that already. Shortly afterwards, Galileo improved the design and was able to take astronomical observation to a whole new depth. He could now revive and amplify Copernicus's heliocentric theory in his Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems, published in 1632. Unluckily for Galileo, the Counter-Reformation was now in full swing. So whilst Copernicus's work 90 years earlier had created surprisingly few waves, Galileo's caught the attention of the Inquisition. He was forced to recant and spent the last decade of his life under house arrest, whilst both his and Copernicus's publications were entered on the famous Index of Proscribed Works. Lenses, of course, were good for looking in as well as looking out, Microscopes appeared in around 1620. Robert Hooke's Micrographia of 1665 made a big splash with its illustrations of a fly's eye and of plant cells. But Hooke was soon overtaken by Antony van Leeuwenhoek, a Dutch draper originally interested in examining threads, 
who achieved 300 times magnification with a blown, not ground, lens, and found himself looking at single-cell organisms, animalcules, spermatozoa, and red blood cells. A host of other pioneers jostle for recognition, from the German Johannes Kepler at the Emperor Rudolf's court in Prague, combining observation with some advanced mathematics to prove the elliptical shapes of the planet's orbits, to the Dutchman Christian Huygens, deriving the formulae for centrifugal force, inventing the pendulum clock, and proposing the wave theory of light. What is striking is the breadth of the inquiries which these individual geniuses applied themselves to. Almost all were accomplished mathematicians. Newton was appointed to the chair of mathematics at Cambridge when only 26. Parenthetically, in later life, Newton ran the Royal Mint and apparently pursued exhaustive personal researches into the circulation of counterfeit coinage in London's taverns. The mercury discovered post-mortem in his hair testifies to his pursuit of metallurgy. Mercury was central to the alchemist's dream of transmuting base metal into gold, and also to the hazardous technique of fire-gilding, which charlatans used to pretend they had achieved it. Anyway, equipped with mathematics and unquenchable curiosity, these pioneers ranged uninhibitedly over the natural world, delving into astronomy, optics, medicine and biology, electromagnetism and a host of other fields, inspired precisely by the sense that they were investigating not separate phenomena, but just different aspects of one wonderfully complex, yet elegant and coherent universe, which worked according to a set of predictable laws which observation and calculation could uncover. In due course, the Church woke up to the thought that this conception, far from invalidating the divine, afforded God a compelling new role as clockmaker or prime mover. So the Church moved to a much more indulgent attitude towards science as the 17th century wore on, though there was still plenty of room for controversy in the Enlightenment period when deists like Voltaire and Benjamin Franklin argued that God was much too busy doing universal stuff to intervene in the lives of individual mortals. There was no need to stress to these founding fathers of science the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration when they never saw themselves as confined by different disciplines. No need either to stress the importance of sharing. Then as now, intellectual excitement, the urge to educate and secure recognition sometimes the need for help, inspired a plethora of discussion and correspondence, what became known as the Republic of Letters. London was a particular hotspot. Boyle, Harvey and others had begun what they called an invisible college at Oxford during the Civil War. This became the Royal Society in London in 1660 under Charles II's patronage. They held discussions and lectures, conducted experiments published, amongst other things, Hooke's and Newton's seminal works, and in effect established peer review as a basic of proper science. The galaxy of eminent fellows included Christopher Wren. Typically, he was an anatomist and an astronomer, as well as the architect of the new St Paul's Cathedral after the Great Fire of 1666. 
quite the new Michelangelo. Sharing, of course, had its limits and pitfalls. Hook and Newton had a long-running feud over how much the former may have contributed to the latter's understanding of universal gravitation. And Leeuwenhoek refused to display his revolutionary blown lens when Peter the Great, yes, the Russian Tsar, came calling. Yet he also wrote some 200 letters to the Royal Society and was finally invited to join. French physicist Denis Papin was another early overseas fellow. So collaboration across borders was hardwired into science from the beginning. No wonder Brexit fills today's British scientific community with such concern. Whilst the natural philosophers revolutionised science, the soldiers and the politicians of the later 17th century pressed on with the usual stuff, to which we must now return. One key development, if also perhaps a surprising one, was the Anglo-Dutch Wars. This, of course, was the Dutch Golden Age, when the New Republic had built up the world's biggest merchant marine. Over in England, the regicide and dictator Oliver Cromwell had put considerable investment into the neglected English navy. And not before time, incredibly, Barbary pirates from Saleh in Morocco, led as it happens by a renegade Dutchman, had seized Lundy Island in the Bristol Channel in 1627 and held it for five years under the Ottoman flag, preying on shipping and raiding coastal settlements across southwest England. They carried off not just booty but also prisoners to be sold in North African slave markets. The Dutch and the English were, of course, traditional allies. Fellow Protestants, they had fought the continent's Catholic powers together. But after Westphalia, what really now mattered was Anglo-Dutch commercial rivalry. The British East India Company had been established in 1600, a couple of years earlier than its Dutch equivalent. But it was the Dutch who had subsequently made the running in the race to displace the Portuguese in Asian markets. Initially, the British sent soldiers to sea. General Admiral Robert Blake telling me hoisted a whip to signify his claim to ride and rule the sea. Blake, in fact, put up a good performance in the First Anglo-Dutch War, 1652-54, to though opposed by a proper seaman in the person of Admiral Martin Tromp, he of the broom emblem, I sweep the mighty sea. Two further wars ensued after the restoration of the British monarchy, with the Dutch generally having the better of things. Every Dutch schoolchild still learns how, in 1667, their fleet broke the chain protecting the Chatham naval base, set fire to the English ships and towed away the English flagship. Samuel Pepys, English naval administrator and diarist, recorded the panic as news of this disaster reached London. The whole kingdom is undone! Pepys arranged for his family's evacuation from London and made a will. He had also recorded, with wonderful frankness and immediacy, the Great Plague of 1665 and the Fire of London of 1666. Not a happy few years for the English. Gradually, however, England's advantage in terms of population size and natural resources began to tell. In 1670, King Charles rejigged the East India Company as a sort of arm of the state, 
granting it the rights to seize territory, dispense justice, mint money, command fortresses and troops, and form alliances, and make war and peace. Across the Atlantic, the English seized New Amsterdam and renamed it New York. In India, Charles's Portuguese wife brought him Bombay as her dowry. The second half of the 17th century saw England start on its course to domination of global trade and then to empire. No one in history ever truly has the last laugh. But the Dutch of the era might have felt they had it when, in 1688, they effected what was in practice a reverse takeover of their great rival. King Charles of England died in 1685 and was succeeded by his brother, as James II. He, too, was himself a Catholic, but, unlike Charles, once on the throne he began to ease the political restrictions on his co-religionists. Worse, his two daughters by his Protestant wife were demoted in the line of succession when his second Catholic wife produced a male heir. The risk of England reverting to Rome and alliance with the Catholic courts of Europe was felt not just at home, but also in the Netherlands, where Mary, the first of James's Protestant daughters, was married to the Stadtholder, a descendant and namesake of William the Silent. The upshot was a Dutch invasion of England in 1688, backed by a significant English Protestant faction, which ousted James and installed William and Mary as joint sovereigns. They quickly reassured their supporters with a Bill of Rights, which definitively secured the supremacy of Parliament over the Crown. No more of that divine right nonsense. So, a successful foreign invasion of England could be comfortingly rebranded as a glorious revolution. There was some mopping up to do, notably in Ireland, where James, with French help and the support of the native population, attempted a comeback to which William's victory at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690 put a decisive end. King Billy's victory on the Boyne remains an iconic event to this day for Ulster's Orangemen, whose annual celebrations do little to heal sectarian divides. There was a similar uprising in support of James in Scotland, mainly remembered for the Glencoe Massacre. The Macdonalds' alleged slowness to take the required oath of allegiance to the new sovereigns was pretext for their slaughter by a rival clan. But the new regime was soon secure, and the century closed out in relative peace and prosperity for Britain. But it is time to turn to the centre of gravity of Europe's history in the second half of the 17th century, France and Louis XIV. Louis came to the throne, aged four, in 1643, as the Thirty Years' War neared its end. France had done well, mainly at the expense of its traditional Habsburg foes, and largely by ignoring the conflict's supposedly confessional nature and making tactical alliances with Protestant competence whenever it suited French interests. So the tide was already running in France's favour as Louis embarked on his 72-year reign, a record for any European monarch, and his dual mission of aggrandizement, of himself and of France. Not that Louis would have acknowledged any distinction, as he succinctly put it, l'état c'est moi. 
the English Stuart monarchs had tried to insist on the divine right of kings and had prompted a revolution. It was left to Louis to bring their concept of divinely ordained absolute monarchy to its spectacular apogee. Domestically, things were not easy in the early years after Westphalia. Rebellious nobles, the so-called fronde, the word refers to a sling, as in slingshot, handy for riots. Rebellious nobles felt it was time to reassert their autonomy, with tax-raising at the heart of their grievances. These storms weathered, Louis pursued the ruthless centralisation of power and extension of Paris's political and cultural authority into every part of the country. To this day... Resentment of Paris's dominance can lead to vehicles with Parisian number plates being vandalised in remoter provinces. This, of course, was the project which successive French dynasties had pursued ever since Hugh Capet took over an embryo kingdom confined to the Paris region at the end of the first millennium. No alternative power centres were to be tolerated, so the Edict of Nantes was revoked to teach the Huguenots their place which was out of the country for tens of thousands of them, Louis brought the process to its triumphant conclusion with his court's move to the new palace of Versailles in 1683, where a neutered French nobility found itself required to dance attendance on the Sun King. This all cost money. Jean-Baptiste Colbert was on hand to advise on strengthening the French economy masterminding the building of strategic industries in France by buying in foreign expertise. Dutch shipbuilders, Swedish ironworkers, Italian glassmakers, even Flemish weavers to bolster the Gobelin manufactory of tapestries. Protection of industries judged strategic is a French preoccupation to this day. Witness the prevention in 2005 of an American takeover of the yoghurt maker Danone. For Colbert, trade was not a rising tide that lifts all boats, but a zero-sum game, a continuation of war by other means. Donald Trump's instinctive embrace of this mercantilist philosophy thus owes more to a Frenchman than he might care to acknowledge. And war was Louis's other great preoccupation, the bolstering of French power and the expansion of French territory by almost constant campaigning. It would be tedious to follow all the twists and turns. Louis made net gains, particularly on France's eastern borders, at the expense of the Holy Roman Empire and of the Spanish Netherlands. But by the later stages of the century, he had succeeded in uniting almost the whole of Europe against him. The Nine Years' War, 1688 to 1697, saw an improbable alliance of the Empire and Spain with the English and the Dutch, battling inconclusively to contain French power. Given the state in which the Empire had emerged from the Thirty Years' War, with its central German heartlands devastated and its constituent princes given greater autonomy, it's perhaps surprising that it was able to mount much of a defence against Louis at all. Nor was the Emperor for much of the relevant time, Leopold I, whose 46-year reign began in 1658, obviously well-equipped to hold things together in the face of French military and diplomatic pressure. Jesuit-trained, he was religiously inflexible, 
not just towards Protestants. He expelled the Jews from his territories. Nor will it have helped that he suffered so conspicuously from the hereditary Habsburg facial deformity that he was known as Hogmouth. The empire was saved from worse damage by French overreach and the resultant pushback by the rest of Europe. But the process of gradual political disintegration continued, with two more princes, Bavaria and Hanover, having to be conciliated with elector status. With the elector of Saxony, Augustus the Strong, acquiring additionally the throne of Poland and Lithuania in 1697, and with the Duke of Prussia, also the elector of Brandenburg, getting himself made up to royal rank as King of Prussia in 1700. Paradoxically, renewed trouble from the Turks on his southeastern borders turned out to be Leopold's salvation. It probably did not seem like that when a vast Ottoman army appeared in 1683 outside the walls of Vienna. But help was to hand in the dashing person of John III Sobieski of Poland-Lithuania, who broke the siege by leading a devastating charge of his Polish hussars. The Sultan abandoned the siege, along with his pavilion, with all its gorgeous fittings and tiger skins, The victors also found the headless corpses of his ostrich and of his favourite concubine, killed to keep them out of enemy hands. By the time the Great Turkish War was concluded 14 years later, Leopold had recovered all those parts of Hungary lost to Christendom at the Battle of Mohacs back in 1526, as well as Transylvania. The power of the Ottoman Empire was definitively broken even if it would be a couple more centuries in the dying, and Leopold's own grip on south-central Europe was strengthened as he took the opportunity to change Hungary from an elective to an hereditary monarchy. As the empire, as a Habsburg asset, became progressively less dependable, so the value of their hereditary lands, the kingdoms of Bohemia, Hungary and Croatia, and the Archduchy of Austria, increased in compensation. This shift in the centre of gravity of Habsburg power in Central Europe would reach its culmination in the 19th century when the Holy Roman Empire, abolished by Napoleon, mutated into the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Thus, the 17th century closed out with two major peace agreements, the Treaty of Reiswijk in 1697 between Louis XIV and everyone else, closing out the Nine Years' War, and a couple of years later, the Treaty of Karlowitz, formalising the expulsion of the Ottomans from south-central Europe. This certainly looks a bit more encouraging than the rancorous swirl of religious wars in the century's early decades. And perhaps a small straws on the wind. 1697 was also the year of the last execution for blasphemy in Britain, and indeed the last mass execution for witchcraft, Anywhere in Western Europe, was the temper of the times becoming a little more rational, a little more enlightened? Of course, the old standbys of greed, fear and ambition were still on hand to drive men into conflict. And even as peace was being celebrated, eyes were turning to Madrid, where the pre-shocks of the next great geopolitical earthquake, the collapse of Habsburg Spain, were already being felt. So our next episode must begin with the War of Spanish Succession, 
and there would be wars aplenty to follow. But, yes, as we enter the 18th century, we are also on the threshold of the Enlightenment, a ferment of creativity which not only vastly expanded the range of human thought, but in so doing provided the intellectual fuel for a new sort of rupture in the European story, the revolutions in America and France. Please do join me for the next episode as we embark on that story. <laughs> ¶¶